I preach to you this evening from the Word of our God as you find it in James chapter 1, the verses 2 to 4. And there James writes, under the guidance of the Spirit again, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, let's sing from hymn 74, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, the letter, the short letter of James starts off in much the usual way. First of all, the writer of this book identifies himself as James. And meaning, of course, in this case, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice he calls himself James, a servant, literally a slave of God. So he obviously has a a kind of lowly consideration of himself. At the same time, he also says that James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that while he may have a low consideration of himself, he has a lofty consideration of his Savior. He calls him Lord, Master, Ruler, Jesus the Christ. And notice as well, James also has a loving concern for the saints because he is writing his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So the believers who are spread far and wide throughout Asia Minor, throughout the Mediterranean region, and a lot of times because of persecution. And to them he says, greetings. And then almost right away, James launches into the matter that he wants to deal with, first of all, and that matter has to do with trials, with testing, as well as with suffering, because he knows that many of these believers are struggling because of their difficult situation. If you're living in the dispersion, that usually means you're living far away from home and in different kinds of troubles and difficulties. So what does James say to these tribes in the dispersion? Well, you might say James wants them to take a somewhat different approach to their difficulties than perhaps they're used to. He wants to teach them something and to equip them. He wants as well to encourage them. And so I'd like to preach to you this evening on the theme, what are we to do with our trials? And you'll notice that James says, we are to expect them, we are to try to understand them, and we are to even embrace them. So James tries to teach three things. Expect your trials, inspect, if you like, your trials, and accept your trials. Well, notice, beloved, as this letter begins, James obviously is not surprised by what his fellow believers in the dispersion are experiencing. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice, he doesn't say, if you happen to meet trials. No, he says, when. And that he means to say thereby that trials in life, this life, are natural They're to be expected. They're also part and parcel of every day as well as of Christian living. 
And I would say to you that inside of James, of course, is not new to him because that's really the testimony of the entire Scriptures. Look, for example, at the Old Testament. Think of Noah. Noah, who suffers. He's a man who builds a boat in the middle of nowhere, some desert somewhere. And we know that as a result, he was heaped all kinds of criticisms and all kinds of ridicule. Or think of Abraham, who's dispatched to go to a, a land he doesn't even know. And he's told about a birth in the family that's beyond all reasonable expectation. Or think about Joseph, who's sold into slavery. Or, or David, who's constantly running, at least in the early part of his life, from King Saul. Or, or think of David and others, of Jeremiah, who's persecuted and dies, as far as we know, horrible deaths. And the list goes on and on. The, the pages of the Old Testament are littered with trials and tests, and you can think of the book of Job as well. But of course, not just the Bible and, and not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And of course, in that regard, our Lord Jesus Christ is a supreme example of someone who suffers all kinds of trials and all kinds of tests. But of course, not just the Bible. What about church history? In the days of the early church, it wasn't unusual for Christians to be arrested, to be fed to the lions, to be even crucified. In the time of the Reformation, it wasn't unusual for Christians to be burned at the stake. And under those decades of communism in Eastern Europe, for example, where Stalin is said to have killed his tens of 20 or 30 million of people, many of those who are Christians. And today, beloved, the persecution continues. The trials continue. Think of what goes on in China and so many Islamic countries as well. There is so much suffering, so much agony in this world. And as a result, when Christians meet this, they, they shouldn't be caught off guard. They, they shouldn't be surprised. You know, if I read some of the commentaries about COVID, also written by Christians, it's, it's like this is a big surprise. The fact that we happen to be in the crucible of, of suffering, but it's not. Not if we think and reflect upon the past and what's happened to God's people. And so we should, by now, we should learn, we should have learned to expect them, to anticipate them, and to some extent even to be prepared for them. At the same time, James also says we should expect trials, he says, of, of various kinds the, the word for various means variegated, many-colored, diversified, very complex. So James is, is telling his readers, when you fall in with trials, no matter what form or shape they may take, is it not true that is? These trials can take many different forms. Some trials are religious. They're related to your faith and being persecuted for your faith. Some trials are physical, relating to your health and your declining well-being. Some trials are financial, relating to your pocketbook or to your business. Some trials are personal, relating to relationships that we have, and sometimes those relationships go south and go sour. And some trials are, are social. There's all kinds of different trials. And notice as well, the, these trials take place in, in different times of our lives. Sometimes they come along when we least expect them. Sometimes we think we're on the top of the world, and at least one day, and the next day it feels like we're at the bottom. 
They're very sudden. They're very unexpected often. And of course, these trials come to us from many different quarters as well. Enemies may attack you. Friends may turn on you. Relatives may disappoint you. Even fellow believers can let you down. And finally, these trials come in different ways. Some trials are, as you may know, very direct. Some are indirect. Some are devious, some are above board, some are in the open, some are in secret, some are the work of people, and some of the work are the work of people and Satan. So in different ways. But the main point that James wants to make is never let your trials catch you off guard. Realize they're coming. Expect them. Anticipate them. So don't be shocked by what's happening in our world today. But of course, that's not all. Not only do we need to accept these trials, we also need to, as it were, understand them, or if you want, inspect them, analyze them. And when we, when we do that, what do we see when we look at these trials more objectively? Well, we see these trials are, in a sense, they're like instruments, they're like tools, they're like means. And why? Because these trials, they, they do something. Look at what James says, for example, in, in the next part of our, our verse, where he says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now look at those words. What's he saying? He's saying three things. He's saying there's, there's three aspects, three elements here that we need to be tuned into. The first is believers need to recognize their trials as tests of faith. That expression, the testing of your faith, means the same as having your faith put to the test. So when trials come along, don't just... Say they're, they're freak accidents or, or occurrences or, or they're bad luck or they're blind fate or, or they're nasty surprises. No, when these things come at you as a child of God, you need to see them as tests, tests of your faith. God is using them. God is working through them. They're not divorced from the will of God. They're, they're not divorced from the sovereignty or the providence of God. God doesn't ignore them or get surprised by them. And so often God allows them. Sometimes He sends them. He uses them. Permits them. And why? Why? To test, to try, as it were, to strengthen our faith. And, and we need to understand, beloved, that faith is a gift of God, but it's a, a gift of God that needs testing. It cannot go, it cannot grow without testing. You can say untested faith is uncertain faith, untested faith is abstract faith, theoretical faith. Untested faith may be no faith at all. 
And what do I mean by that? Well, I'm thinking, for example, of the man who for years went to church but then got sick. And then he stopped going. Or I'm thinking of the woman whose husband died and whose child also died and then abandoned her faith. Threw it all overboard. I'm thinking of the young person who was persecuted and who then denied Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You know, there are so many people who, who claim to possess faith, but when sorrow, when pain and hardship come along, they just get rid of it all. As if it never mattered. As if it was never important. As if it never counted. But you know, there are other people who when death deprives them of a loved one, they end up leaning on God even more. When sickness attacks them, they, they become models of courage and resilience. Or when financial setbacks assail them, they tackle life with renewed vigor and determination. You know, over the years, I've had so many believers come to me to say that the trials that they experienced were among the best things that ever happened to them. Oh, they weren't easy. In fact, some of them were really, really difficult. But in the end, they were so beneficial. They were so necessary for the growth and development of their faith life. So, beloved, trials are tests of our faith. Your faith, my faith. But also something else, we need to realize that trials produce something because James says they produce steadfastness. What is steadfastness? That's a bit of an old-fashioned word. Well, it means the same as, you could say, endurance. You know, the endurance, right, of a long-distance runner, right? You've got to keep going, and you go, and you go. Your lungs may feel like they're exploding. Your, your legs are, feel like they're falling off. You, you don't know whether you can go another step, but you endure. You, you proceed. You, you go forward. And that's steadfastness, a kind of perseverance. And that's something we all need. For example, a young couple gets married... And, of course, they're in love, and they assume that the honeymoon will go on forever and ever. And they are convinced that they can climb every mountain, ford every stream, and they can seize every dream. But then, reality sets in. Before long, the, the wife discovers that her, the husband has some annoying habits that she really didn't know anything about before she married him. You know, he never picks up his dirty, soiled clothes, puts them in the hamper. He doesn't do that. He squeezes the toothpaste, would you believe, in the middle instead of at the end? Now, how strange is that? And he's calling his mother at all kinds of times. And the wife also has some habits that kind of nag at the husband that he didn't know anything about because she, she nags him every day about something or other. And she spends far too much money on makeup. 
And she's always trying to dress him up. You know how that goes. Now those are just minor problems in the scheme of things. And there are a lot that are a lot more serious. Well, what happens in this kind of a relationship when it's tested in these various ways, minor and major? Well, it'll either get stronger or weaker. It'll either work its way through the problems or be swamped by the problems. It'll either see that couple drift apart or view their problems as challenges to be overcome. In short, you either give up or you grow up. You either throw in the towel or you're mature. You either concede or you persevere. And as to what James is after, well, that's very clear. He wants all these trials that believers experience to be channels and avenues through which they learn to stand their ground, to dig in their heels, to grow gritty determination and dogged resolve, steadfastness. That's what he wants to see. Not people who are blown about by every little wind, every little event in their lives, but people who are firmly rooted in the gospel and in the gospel's Lord. And so, beloved, these trials are tests. They produce steadfastness, hopefully. And the third thing, believers need trials to become perfect, to become complete. James says it very clearly that steadfastness must have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you'll notice James doesn't see steadfastness as a kind of temporary quality or as a kind of short-term fix or happening. No, he speaks about steadfastness must have its full effect, must finish, another translation says, finish its work. In other words, this steadfastness is something that goes on and on. He doesn't quit after the first setback. He doesn't give up after the first failure or disappointment, and on after the second, the third, or the fourth either. It keeps going and going. It's like your ever-ready battery bunny that never seems to die. And indeed, it keeps going, he says, until maturity arrives. Literally, James uses the word perfect. Now, that's a challenging, intimidating word. It's used of God the Father, right? The Father of lights who's perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. And it's used of Jesus. Being like Jesus is like being perfect. And of course, we know that in this life, we're never going to achieve perfection. We're never going to arrive at absolute maturity. But yet, it, it needs to remain the goal, the aim, the target of our lives. For the reality is, the wonderful reality is that one day, one day, that's what we're going to experience. 
John says when he appears, when, when Jesus appears, he says, then we shall be like him. It doesn't say we, he shall be like us, thankfully. No, it says we are going to be like him. Perfect. Mature. But notice James talks not just about maturity. He also talks about completion. He says complete, lacking in nothing, or not lacking for anything. Anything at all. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a perfect person? Can you imagine being a complete human being? Someone who always says the right thing at the right time, at the right occasion. Someone who also always thinks the right thing. Someone who always does always the right thing. You know, in this life of imperfection and struggle, that comes across as hopelessly idealistic and impossible. And yet, Scripture says it'll happen. Scripture says Jesus Christ will make it happen. He did not die for you and I in order to leave us in a state of incompleteness and perpetual imperfection, much less in a state of poverty, suffering, and want. No, He dies to make us whole, to make us like Him. To ensure that one day we will not be lacking for anything. Can you imagine how blessed that'll be for us as his children? Yes, and now hopefully you can also maybe begin to see why James begins our text with the saying, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. You know, when you first read those words, you kind of stumble all over them, right? You say, well, this is a strange business. What about hopelessly idealistic words? What utterly unrealistic words? How can joy, pure joy, even be remotely connected to any amount of trials and sufferings and setbacks? Who can imagine saying to someone who's seriously sick, or who's deep into marriage problems, or on the verge of bankruptcy, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. That's kind of asking for a reaction, isn't it? And maybe not a good one. We would say, humanly speaking, that's kind of ridiculous. Or is it? For surely after considering some of the positive things that trials produce, we are able Maybe just a little to adopt a more positive attitude. And it's not just a case of being able. You know, of being able to count it all joy. No, notice James is, is fairly emphatic here. He's, this is an order. This is a command. This is something you have to do. You have to consider it pure joy. Count it all joy. It's not really optional at all. That's what we're called to do. 
We need not just to tolerate our trials, but we need to react positively towards them. And again, I would say that most times our reaction to that is, well, that's just impossible, impractical, unrealistic. It's not going to happen, not in this world anyway. But before you come to that conclusion, just wait a minute. Do you realize what can be done in the power of the Holy Spirit? That remind you of Peter and the other apostles who were flogged by the authorities, the Jewish authorities in the book of Acts, 39 lashes minus 1 or 40 minus 1. So you kind of had your backs ripped open, the blood flowing down, and the pain being excruciating. And, and how do they react? Well, Acts 5 says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin not only beaten up, but rejoicing. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Or let me remind you of Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi. They too had been beat up, tried unjustly, whipped, put in the stocks in the deepest hole in that stinking dungeon. And how do they react? Well, it says in Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, okay, and singing hymns to God. Singing hymns to God. They probably didn't know it, but if they did, they might have been singing Abide With Me. They were joyful in spite of everything. I think also of the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that? He's the black man. He's probably black because he comes from Ethiopia. Everybody from Ethiopia in those days was black. So he's probably black and he's a eunuch. He serves the king of Ethiopia. He comes to Jerusalem. He thinks he can worship there because he has some kind of affinity, some kind of interest in Christianity. And, and he comes there and most likely the door is closed because if you're a eunuch, you don't get into the temple because you're among the unclean. You're among the outcasts. So he doesn't get to go where he hopes to go. And he, he's going back to his land and probably somewhat disappointed. We don't know for sure. And then he's reading the scriptures and he's trying to figure out what in the world is Isaiah the prophet saying and he doesn't have a clue. And then Philip suddenly comes along and offers to explain it. And Philip does. And all of a sudden the lights go on. And he believes and is baptized. And then he continues to go back to Ethiopia, to an unknown, uncertain, probably hostile future. How would you like to be perhaps one of the only believers in the entire land? So how did he go back? Well, you notice the last thing Scripture says about him. It says, and he went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing. So, you understand that, beloved? And these people mentioned in Scripture, they're not alone. There's so many more examples that we can bring to the fore from the history of God's people. In the midst of the most terrible trials, God's people didn't grow bitter. They didn't rail and rant against God. They didn't turn their backs on the Almighty. No, they, they rejoiced. 
And they didn't take to Facebook either in order to vent their spleen. No, they counted it all joy. The Holy Spirit makes them able to do that. In the midst of hard times, the cream rises to the surface and the cream is filled with joy. And so these people, they saw their trials as belonging to the very nature of the Christian life. They expected them, they accepted them as means to further growth. They dealt with them as challenges to be faced, hurdles to be overcome. They saw them as obstacles on the road ultimately to completeness and to a crown. Truly. Oh, and one last thing. They saw them as a common feature in the lives of all of all of God's children. You know, I sometimes have heard it said when people suffer, well, I, I'm telling you this, Pastor, but you, you probably don't really understand because you've never ever experienced anything like this. And of course, on one level, that's, that's true. I haven't experienced everything that my parishioners have experienced in the hospital in terms of various ailments and illnesses and handicaps and all kinds of problems. So on one level, it's true. I'm not in their boat. But you know, on another level, it's, it's not true. For as children of God, we will all receive, at one time or another, in one way or another, our share of trials. I was once told by a lady in one of my congregations that she said, I don't really like that first prayer of the form for baptism. I was kind of curious. I said, what do you mean? Well, she says, I don't like that expression where it says a constant death. Because life's not like that. I didn't say much. I just said to her, well, maybe before you make that final judgment, you should wait a little while. And a couple of years later, she was struck by cancer. And she went on that endless merry-go-round of tests and visits and therapies, and you know it. And at a certain point, she said, you know, what I said to you some years back? I said, yeah. So I take it all back. Because this does feel at times like a constant death. You see, beloved, that's our situation in this life. And James says about that situation, you need to approach it positively. You need to count it as joy, my brothers and sisters. You will know trials, but you'll never know them alone. Not if you live in fellowship with your great God and Heavenly Father. You'll always have Him beside you, there for you, strengthening you, helping you, helping you through the, the deepest valleys and the most harshest of circumstances. And that's the will of God. So James says, brothers and sisters, accept your trials. 
and see them as opportunities to grow, to grow in the faith and in the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.